After the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, Alaska Native people built corporations that fund infrastructure in Native communities, provide jobs, educational opportunities, and have spun off subsidiary businesses that employ thousands of Alaskans and generate billions in revenue. ANCSA didn't provide all that Alaska Native people wanted, but 50 years on, how well do they think it's working now, and how large is the economic footprint in Alaska and the nation? We'll talk about the corporations of ANCSA today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by... ConocoPhillips, investing in oil exploration and production and working to create economic opportunities for Alaskans. ConocoPhillips, unlocking Alaska's energy resources. Elisogvik College, Alaska's only tribal college, is currently accepting applications for the spring 2022 semester. Elisogvik offers certificate and degree programs, in-person or distance education, with small class sizes built around indigenous culture. Contact recruitment at elisogvik.edu to find out about free tuition waivers. This message brought to you by Elisogvik College, Alaska's only tribal college, building strong communities through education and training. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. For the first people of Alaska, ANCSA represented an opportunity. There was pressure from Alaska Native people and supporters to settle the land claims in order for the new state of Alaska to be able to clear the way for a pipeline to cash in on oil in Prudhoe Bay. The discovery of oil created a path for the state's indigenous people to leverage their claim to Alaska in order to protect the abundant resources of their lands and waters for today and for future generations. It took a lot of political wrangling both in the state and in Congress to negotiate a deal for 44 million acres of land and nearly $1 billion in cash to set up state corporations with Alaska Native people as shareholders. The final legislative package wasn't what everyone wanted, and five decades later, there remains a mix of criticism and praise for it. Alaska Public Media with Indian Country Today and the Anchorage Daily News have been partnering on a months-long reporting project about the history and contemporary issues around ANCSA today, leading up to the December 17th anniversary. We're collecting those stories at our website, alaskapublic.org slash ANCSA50. Here to help explain how the corporations operate today is Hallie Bissett, the executive director of the Alaska Native Village Corporation Association. And we've also got Aaron Schutt, the CEO of Doyon, the Interior Native Corporation. And Aaron is also the chairman for the ANCSA Regional Association Board. In the second half of the program, we'll be joined by Kim Reitmeyer, the executive director director of the ANCSA Regional Association. But right now, welcome Hallie and Aaron. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. And also, Alaskans, you can also join our conversation today. Are you a shareholder and have a story to relay about what ANCSA has meant for your community or family over the decades? Do you have thoughts about what you'd like to see changed or amended? Or are you an Alaskan who has benefited from a job with one of the corporations? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That number is one 800 Four seven eight eight two five five. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is five five zero eight four two two five five zero eight four two two. You can also email us talk 
at alaskapublic.org. Aaron, let's uh, start off with the basics. How were the 12 regions decided on? Did congressional staffers draw the maps or did Alaska Native people create the map? How did this come about? Well, I think you'll find from that time frame that you get different answers when you ask different people. <laughs> um, but you can look at the map and see that generally our regional corporations are organized around ethnic groups among our Alaska Native people. So for example, Doyon in the interior were our Athabascan people. And the boundaries are pretty clear on that with North, the North Slope, the Brooks Range there to the north of us is Inukyot people. The west of us are Yupik and Nukyap people. And then, you know, there, there were some um, line drawing exercises for sure. There are other Athabascan people in the Cook Inlet and the Atna region, but we also have mountain ranges that kind of need that definition as well for our region. And, and so as you look across the state, uh, they could have drawn more divisions for sure, but how they got to 12 was uh, makes sense ethnically and culturally. And when you say they, who did the actual drawing of the maps? Who who worked on that? I, I think ultimately it was congressional staff, and there were some people involved in a couple of different offices that ended up, and some of them are still in, in legal practice in D.C., the Van Ness Feldman firm, the Snosky Chambers firm, and some other law firms that back then were congressional staffers or working at the Department of Interior as in the solicitor's office and some other policy shops in the government that helped craft ANCSA and then implement it in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And this could be a question that um, Kim can address later on in the program, but I'll put it out there right now, Aaron, and, and uh, tell, tell us what you know about it. There was a 13th corporation for shareholders who lived outside of Alaska. I, I think that it's maybe no longer functioning. Please let me know if, if uh, what you know about that. But what can you tell us about it? And uh, there was more than 5,000 Alaska Native people who were part of it. Yeah, and that history, I'm not an expert in that history, but I think that was an amendment to ANCSA in the early 1970s that created the 13th region. Mm -hmm. And then an important component, which I know you wanted to talk about today, and is a really important part of how ANCSA passed and continues to function is the Section 7i revenue sharing, where revenue generated from ANCSA lands from the subsurface or the timber resources is shared with all the other regions and village corporations in the state. And the 13th region was excluded from that as a landless region. And that's really where I think ultimately that experiment with the 13th region failed they didn't have that consistent revenue share opportunity from the other regions that helped fund them through down years or through those early years where the revenue was really important for the early days of all of the ANCSA corporations. Mm -hmm. So I do believe that the 13th region was administratively dissolved maybe about 10 years ago. I know there have been some efforts uh, to revive it, but they are not currently functioning as a corporation. But the people that were part of that outside corporation uh, are still shareholders. Are, are they not in the corporations that are in the state, even if they do live outside? Are they still shareholders? 
they could be shareholders of village corporations, but if they hold shares in another region, it would have been through gift or inheritance. I see. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I'm sure that we'll talk more about that as we go forward. But Hallie, I want to get you in here. There are more than 200 village corporations. Describe for us the different roles that the village corporations serve as compared to the regional corporations. Yeah, sure. I mean, there were over 250 originally uh, village corporations created under the Settlement Act. Um, Today, there's 177 that are still operating. Uh, The village corporations tend to, well, one major difference between a village and a regional corporation is one thing Aaron said. Uh, The regional corporation typically will own the subsurface estate of the lands and the villages own the surface estate. Um, villages have been for a long time uh, investing locally um, in terms of you know the type of things that they're investing in. So oftentimes they'll own the local store, uh, they'll own the utility, they'll be doing projects like trying to revitalize their community through um, alternative energy projects. And now we've got broadband projects going on on the ground and um, we see that a lot with the village corporations they they tend to have benefits uh, and regionals have it too but i've never seen it like in the villages where they're they're doing things like paying funeral costs and for celebratory events like potlatches and whatnot for people that have passed on including bringing um you know bodies home to be buried in the village things like that um and the other thing is that you know, just a small handful of the villages have been, you know, extremely successful. Good news is, you know, like there's 13 of them on the top 49er list of those top rated Alaska businesses, but the rest of them um, are, are struggling and are, are dependent pretty much almost 100%. I would say two thirds of our members on that 7J revenue that they received that that uh, Aaron, sorry, he mentioned earlier. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, scary to think what happens, you know, in less than 10 years when Red Dog, which is providing about 90% of that revenue, um, ceases to exist because the project moves over to state land and it's no longer shareable. There really isn't anything coming to replace that. So the villages have kind of this cliff coming in terms of that 7i generating uh, revenue that they are used to receiving. And so um, they're, they're just, uh, their worries are a little bit different at this time than um at the regional level, I would say. All right. Thank you uh, for laying that out. It sounds like there's going to be a lot to discuss going forward um, as uh, this concern looms larger in the future over the next decade, as you mentioned, with the Red Dog Mine. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and we are talking about ANCSA, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, at 50. It is 50 years old in December. This is the second of a three-part Talk of Alaska series on ANCSA, and uh, we talked about the history in the first part in October. Today, we're talking about the corporations as they are operating today. And in December, we'll look forward as to what the corporations may envision for the future and what younger shareholders would like to see in that regard. You can join our conversation at statewide at 1-800-478-8255, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Aaron, the original legislation had some very significant 20-year sunset clauses. 
do you, when you look at that now and what that would have meant after 20 years, do you see it as a congressional effort to assimilate and wipe out Alaska Native control after those 20 years were up? If amendments hadn't been made, enrollment would have ended, shares could have been sold to anyone. If non-Native people controlled the corporations, the land could have been sold. Why would that 20-year sunset be in there unless the idea was really to just dissolve it all? That is the presumption that most of us have. I certainly wasn't around at that time or sure. wasn't active in ANCSA world during the debate in that first 20 years. But I do know that our leaders across the state almost immediately began lobbying the Congress to make changes, which eventually passed in the so-called 1991 amendments that allowed us to issue more shares and enroll people born after 1971, eliminated those provisions that you just described and allowed us to kind of look forward to where ANCSA corporations are permanent fixtures in the Alaska Native set of organizations serving our people. After 20 years, the shareholder preference would have sunsetted if it hadn't been amended in 1991. Does that mean that any person could have then bought shares in the native corporations? Yeah, under certain circumstances, they, it would have become, we would have been, have our stock kind of not traded on a market, but available to transfer. And that those economic incentives for an individual shareholder could become quite motivating and that's to the detriment of the long-term native organization. So I think that's why you saw so much activity lobbying to prevent that start of those transactions in the early 1990s. And you got to remember that we at Doyon and I think across the state, our land is our heritage and it's our future. And it's not just those shares, it's all of that land that was chosen for subsistence and cultural purposes, for economic development in our rural communities, that becomes at risk under the scenario where shares start to leave native hands and the other protections of ANCSIS would have faded away. Mm -hmm. Do either of you have a sense of how much stock is held today by uh, non-native people? I don't know at other regions. Ours at Doyon is a pretty small percentage. It's and it's generally uh, as people unfamiliar with ANCSA don't understand that original shares can pass or do pass at the death of the holder. And a lot of times how it ends up um, in the hands of a non-native is a non-native spouse or someone else in a will that gets those shares. Now, some people want to give them back to the native heirs, but a lot of times it takes a little while. And, you know, a prime example, I don't think he'll be upset with me sharing this, is our Congressman Don Young, who uh, late wife Lou was a Doyon shareholder. And, and when she passed, Don got half those shares. And I think he's now transferred them all on um, to his grandchildren who are Doyon shareholders. But that's an example of how those shares can pass out of native ownership. And when they do, they become non-voting. Uh, but that is a concern as you look forward into the next 50 years is having more and more shares in the hands of 
non-native people, many of them outside of Alaska, that don't have that tie to our region and our corporation. Well, let's talk a little bit more about shareholder enrollment. Aaron Doyon, ASRC, Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, NANA, ATNA, Sea Alaska, Chalista, have all changed how shareholder enrollment is handled. Tell us about how Doyon changed the enrollment requirements. Yes, so this goes back to the 1991 amendments again. That was a really important set of amendments to ANCSA a little over 30 years ago. And at that time, it allowed us to um, amend our articles of incorporation and issue new shares. That was a very, procedurally, it's a very difficult thing to do at an Inksa corporation. The voting requirements are super high. But that was the first action the Doyon board took after those amendments was to do that work and create what we call class C shares, those born after 1971 who were direct descendants of Doyon shareholders. And that's how I got my shares in 1992. Ours was a one-time backwards looking only from those born from just after the deadline in 71 to 1991. Um, and then when I first came to work for Doyon, we had a second campaign to do a perpetual enrollment of class C shareholders. So that happened in the 2007 annual meeting at Doyon. So I'm sharing that because each region has had a little different approach to how they do their shares for people born after 71. And six of the 12 regions have now um, created classes of shares for those born after 71. A number of village corporations have started that work. Not quite as many have finished it, but I think that again, as you look forward, that's a really important component of the next 10 or 20 years in ANCSA is how each corporation addresses those needs with their younger, either shareholders or descendants. Helly, uh, dive in a little bit there on the village corporation shares and what you see changing in that regard, and and how do how for those of us who are not clear about the distinctions between the regional and village corporation shares, help us better understand that. Uh, well, in terms of of how the shares are transferred and and whether they are remaining as voting shares or not are are all the same. So everything you heard Aaron describe for a regional corporation operations is similar to a village. Um, the villages just are uh, a more direct uh, link to the actual village site. Um, so you're typically going to have, you know, uh, a family-owned business, essentially. Um, the shares stay within the family through gifting and inheritance. I can tell you that the Alaska Native Village Corporation Association has been working um, with some of our villages to change the state probate law. Um, you know, as Aaron kind of explained, when you pass on, and you don't happen to have a will. If you're the, so this is the most important part. If you have a will, you can leave your shares to whomever you like. They're yours to leave to whoever. But say you were to unfortunately pass away and, and not have a will, uh, we wanted to prevent the, the shares from leaving the uh, Native family member. So we were trying to work on some legislation at the state level that would require those shares to not go to the non-Native spouse but would default to go to the native children. So there are efforts underway, you know, by the villages to kind of make sure 
that those shares stay in native hands and um you know they'll there are other things like um a lot of us pay distributions out of our settlement trust accounts rather than um you know using the corporation and dividends um, and you can actually change the way that you pay distributions out of that settlement trust to make it for only Alaska Native people. And I've actually heard of villages that are doing that so that, you know, the non-Native uh, shareholders are not part of the trust distributions, for instance. Let's drill down a little bit there. Reporting from Indian Country Today on this issue noted that the, the two questions related to future enrollment, should it be open to those who are one quarter Alaska Native but born after 1971? And the second question is, should enrollment be open to Alaska Natives with less than a quarter blood quantum? So for both of you, do you think there is a better way that should be defined by Alaska Natives as to who should be considered Native for the purpose of shareholder status or even tribal enrollment? What's right here? Um, the blood quantum issue is, um, you know, a construction from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so how how do the tribes want to see this handled going forward? It seems like the tribe should make that decision, not the federal government. Right, Lauren, I think you already pointed that out, you know, that um, it, it should, it's a matter of self-determination in my uh, opinion. And uh, the quarter blood quantum was something constructed in Washington, DC by non-indigenous people. Um, typically, if you're even a non-native child and you're adopted into a, a clan in the Southeast or anywhere in Alaska or one of the Athabascan, Athabascan clans, you're now a native person. That's how it works in the law as well. Um, I know I see Alaska is exploring that very question right now in terms of, you know, native enough. And, and I think they're having that conversation because they're one of the regions that had that quarter blood quantum cutoff. And um, I, you know, my, myself, I'm a quarter, but my children are not. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, does it include them? Why wouldn't it, you know, they've grown up in the same culture that I have. And so it's something that we all struggle with. And it's part of that conversation as you try to go forward. I know that many villages are in talking about including um, people born after. And this, these are the types of questions that often come up and they're very hard to answer. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that there's a, a great deal of widely varying positions on this within the Alaska Native community. Erin, your thoughts about this. What, what feels uh, right when it comes to making that determination about who is a tribal member? Well, I'm specifically talking about tribes. They already have the power to define their membership, and it can be based on blood quantum or not. Many of them have chosen something other than um, a specific blood quantum. You know, for example, outside of Alaska, many many tribes have eliminated that. If you're a direct descendant of a tribal member, the tribe may enroll you. Some retain that quarter blood quantum. I know that specifically. My children, uh, my wife is Tana Autumn from Southern Arizona, and they have a quarter blood quantum requirement that is still in effect there. Uh, but other tribes don't and that's true here in alaska for tribes they can make their own choice and and already are uh, native corporations can also make that choice to eliminate the quarter blood quantum requirement and several of the regions have eliminated the one quarter blood quantum doyon did not and it's two um, enrollment decisions but we have started talking about it as we look at the demographics into the future 
and this challenge, we have many people with Canadian relatives because the border's just a line on a map. Many of our people have um, their Canadian native ancestry doesn't count. There are people like many people like me that have married other native folks, but their children's blood from outside of Alaska doesn't count. And then there's just the dilution um, as people marry non-natives that, as Hallie mentioned, so we all have to wrestle with those choices. And I think as native corporations and tribes have matured, they see this and they have to answer, they and their membership have to answer what's right for that corporation or that tribe. All right, well, thank you. I know that that's a, a big question for folks to wrestle with there. Um, what do you think most Alaskans don't understand about the Alaska Native Corporations? Aaron, what kind of questions do you get from people that just don't understand what's going on there? Well, I'll start with my favorite quote from the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, which is Alaska is often the exception, not the rule, which came from the Sturgeon case a few years ago, which is an Alaska-based case. And it kind of describes how complex our system is here. So a lot of people that don't know native corporations, for example, assume that we provide the social services to homeless folks that they may encounter here in Anchorage or Fairbanks or urban areas, or that we're responsible for kind of the tribal government roles that they may be familiar with from reservation-based tribes. And we just have a very different system here where we do have our tribes that have those roles and native corporations have a different role. So that's the most common misperception out or lack of information out in um, Alaska, but it's also even more true as native corporations do their work outside of Alaska, trying to educate people about this different system we have. And um, Hallie, what are your thoughts about that? What uh, kind of questions do you get from Alaskans and from other folks about both the regional corporations and the village corporations? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, recently we were actually compared to Fred Meyer and Microsoft and, and the thought that Alaska Native corporations are anything like uh, a regular corporation, Fortune 100, 500 corporation that people know in the community is just, it's a little bit silly for many reasons. One being the sharing component we talked about already, but, you know, last a year or two ago, the business roundtable, the Fortune 100 companies were celebrating, um, you know, giving 1% of their net income to the community. And, and here we are, you know, as Alaska Native corporations, I think we were the first socially responsible corporations and they typically give back about 30% or more of their net income through dividends, through culture camps, through, um, you know, the potlatches that they are throwing and, and all the other benefits that their uh, scholarships, uh, job opportunities, um, you know, the roles that we play for our community. Um, these are really community-based organizations. The word corporation, um, you know, it, it just, it doesn't give you a sense of what we really are. Um, and, and that is here to, to provide for our people. We're actually required by law to uh, provide for our, our people's social, cultural, and economic well-being in perpetuity, so forever. Um, and we're our shareholders, our shareholders, they own a piece of the corporation, but we are sharing in the care and management of the lands we were able to retain under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. 
So I think it's a, it's a special relationship we have with the land that also is represented in this corporation and these terms shareholders that are not our terms. They come from Washington, D.C. Are there concerns about, as as you're sorting through the the various ideas about shareholder enrollment and what that should look like and um, uh, whether to drop the quarter Alaska Native blood quantum requirement, what happens to the shares then if there are more people allowed in? How does that change the setup for the shares? Aaron, do you want to? I'll address it, and I'll address it from Doyon, and, and the, sure. the answer may vary across the regions, other than that original shares are passed on through gift and inheritance, um, and they remain. So we had 9,081 original shareholders times 100 shares. So that, that stock remains out mostly, as we said, vast majority still with Alaska Native people. But our shares that we did at enrollment time, so like my shares, Doyon made the choice, those are life estate shares. So they don't pass when I die. I can't gift them. So when I die, those shares go back to Doyon and we've grown from 9,081 to about 20,400 shareholders with probably 55, 60% of the individuals holding shares being what we call class C, those born after 1971. So those are important demographics to consider. Another thing to share about Doyon's enrollment is that if a child is enrolled before they're 18, they get 30 shares. And of course they can't vote until they turn 18. So they get a 30% dividend. Um, when they turn 18, they get the 70 more shares and they start voting in our system. And we highly encourage that participation. But I think you brought it up to talk about dilution of benefits. And that's certainly something that corporations consider as they go through enrollment decisions is how much it dilutes the dividend out to that shareholder base. How much does it create competition in the market for those shareholder preference jobs and other benefits that we provide? How much can the corporation provide? Mm -hmm. But when you look at the kind of the demographics of family units, which again, a lot of Alaska Native people, we don't consider individual rights the same way as necessarily everyone else in the U.S. And we look at communities and family groups and the average family in an enrollment situation is economically the same. Um, and the benefits kind of benefit the communities the same as we grow it. And we thought in the interior, we thought that was a very important reason to bring our young people into our corporation, make them politically active in, in our corporation and in our our native organizations and continue to provide those benefits as widely as we can, knowing that maybe as one individual is disadvantaged by the choice to enroll, but the community as a whole, it's the same total number of dollars going out and the average family has the same benefit. All right, well, thank you. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Kim Reitmeyer, who is the executive director of the ANCSA Regional Association, the 12 Regional Association uh, or Corporation Association. 
We will take more calls and comments as we continue our series on covering ANCSA on its 50th anniversary as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Everyone is excited for the 2021-2022 school year. It's important to prepare for an active year ahead, whether you play competitive sports or just enjoy being active. It's important to make your overall health a priority. So get your COVID-19 vaccine, stay active and involved, check in with friends and family, and bounce back from COVID together and make it a great year. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We are discussing ANCSA today, how the corporations are operating in Alaska after 50 years of being in business after the passage of ANCSA. And on the line with us today, uh, we are joined now by Kim Reitmeyer. Kim is the executive director of the ANCSA Regional Association. Hi, Kim. Hi, how are you, Lori? Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. We also still have Aaron Schutt, the CEO of Noyon, the Interior Native Corporation, and Aaron's also the chairman for the ANCSA Regional Association Board, and Hallie Bissett, the executive director of the Alaska Native Village Corporation Association, is also with us. So we have representatives from the regional corporation, the 12 regional corporations, um, also a rep from the now 177 Village Corporation Association, and Aaron Schutt, who represents a leader of one of the regional corporations. So, Kim, we've been talking about shareholders and um, voting, and talk, um, pick us, pick up there on that thread. Uh, how do shareholders get more than one vote, and what are the things that shareholders are asked to vote on that the board the board isn't deciding for each corporation? Yeah, thanks, Lori. Um, so. Um, shareholders are uh, original shareholders. I think Aaron talked a little bit about the different classes of shareholders. So um, original shareholders were uh, provided 100 shares, mm -hmm. and so they vote those shares based upon uh, the number of shares that they hold, and that obviously could be different if you're gifted shares or willed shares. Um, when my grandfather passed, he gifted his shares to the grandchildren, willed them to the grandchildren. So we all got portions, uh, you know, 25 shares. So uh, any given shareholder could have a different number of shares and different uh, classes. So when they're going to vote, typically what we're voting on is we vote upon our uh, elected board of directors. So each regional corporation elects their board of directors and then any necessary items uh, in a given year. But typically, it's standard of just voting those directors that run our Native corporations and keeping those Native corporations in Native-held stock and ownership. The corporations are state-chartered. How are they similar and different from other state-chartered corporations? Yeah, thanks for that question. As, as Hallie mentioned, 
you know, that is really one of the misunderstandings of our Alaskan Native corporations. And um, I've had the opportunity to work within the Native corporations and at the ANCSA Regional Association, but I've also had opportunity in my career to work for, uh, uh, you know, other businesses. And so making that comparison of what a Native corporation is and what, uh, you know, Western business culture, we talk about a corporation. And I think um, 50 years ago when, when ANCSA was created, we were called Alaska Native Corporations, and we were, uh, be, we were also called shareholders. And I think 50 years later, it's a really different definition of corporation and shareholder. Um, I recently had a shareholder tell me, I don't own my shares. I hold my shares of my corporation. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to become a shareholder or be a shareholder to hold those shares and help guide our corporation. And so when you look at the corporation structure of looking at, um, you know, that quadruple bottom line, that economic view, the social view, the spiritual view, and the cultural view, and those are woven into each one of the regional corporation's mission statements of providing back to our people, ensuring the, uh, the, the protection of our lands and our culture is woven into everything that's done on that corporate level. And even you take a look at, you know, you talked about it earlier, the 7i and 7j. Um, 7i takes the the resource wealth and shares it amongst the other regional corporations. Right. Um, I'm I'm from Kodiak and we have a saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. So if you asked, um, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's to share their profits with each other, that's a mind-boggling concept. But for culturally driven organizations like these. Uh, regional and village corporations, it's in the fabric of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and we're discussing ANCSA. Uh, the 50th anniversary of ANCSA is coming up in December, and today is the second Talk of Alaska that we are putting together on ANCSA and the corporations today. And in December, we'll be taking another look at what the future should be for the Alaska Native Corporations, uh, and we'll ask those questions of young shareholders in our next program. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you are a shareholder and have a story that you'd like to relay about what ANCSA has meant for your community or family over the decades, or if you have thoughts about what you'd like to see changed or amended, or are you an Alaskan who has benefited from a job with one of the corporations, you can call us at 1-800-478-8255, 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Kim, the... Um, the healthcare branches, Manilik in Kotzebue, Search in Southeast, uh, the Yukon Kuskokwim Health Corporation in the Bethel region, Kawarik in Nome, South Central Foundation in Anchorage in the Matsu, and others like them. Uh, how were they created? Was this part of the original ANCSA legislation to be responsible for health, or did that come later? 
Oh, boy, Howdy, we might have to toss this one over to Aaron. I, the health organizations and the creations of those nonprofits, um, I, Aaron, do you want to take that one? I believe they were separate. Aaron? Yeah, I'm not the, the best expert, <laughs> but I'll take a little bit of a crack at it. So ANCSA does not address the tribal health system. Oh, it didn't create it. it. It was created separately as a, a kind of an offshoot of the Indian Self-Determination Education Assistance Act, which is also a piece of 1970s legislation that allows tribes to take over as part of those things, take over functions that the federal government previously provided those services to native people. So that would be Bureau of Indian Affairs services as well as Indian Health Service services. And that activity started to build in the probably 1980s and 90s in particular. Uh, where the tribes created their own consortium in the interior. We have Tanau Chiefs Conference, which predates Doyon uh, as an organization of tribes. But the functionality of these ISDIA programs really started in the 80s and 90s. And the health system you see today, uh, Alaska leads the nation and the world in tribal health, indigenous people running their own programs, providing those services. We're all very proud of the services that our native organizations provide, but they really have almost nothing to do with ANCSA. All right. Well, that's uh, that's an important distinction. Thank you for clarifying that for me. Let's go to the phones for a moment. Marlene is endearing. Hi, Marlene. Good morning. I have a concern about Athens being added to the corporation and one finding i had because some uh loved ones are w- wondering how come they didn't get the child they did child denied to the corporation and one of the findings i had is because of the uh single parent they didn't name the absent parent or a corporation worker back then said that they're going to state uh, uh, guidelines to uh, toward in, in the, for uh, what what kind of nationality the nationality they named that child is absent. They call him white because I've been finding some that they are white according to their uh, birth certificate now. Is that something that should be looked into, or is that uh, going to help? And I just heard you talk about a uh, uh, corporation versus, uh, like, our in, in anyway, uh, one concern I have back then is uh, Manalek had jobs here, and one person passed away with no will. So they use his job application through Manelak to uh, to give the will to people. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks for the call, Marlene. Um, I I feel like the issues that she was citing probably need to be addressed by her regional or village corporation. I I can't imagine unless Kim, you had any thought about. Um, it was kind of hard to hear her connection was breaking up as well. Lori, this is Aaron. Maybe I can take that one because sure. I know the issues from what Doyon 
has to go through every now and then. So one of the issues I think Marlene was trying to raise was the fact that uh, blood quantums from the 1970s were, it was fairly common for that so-called certificate of Indian blood, which listed your blood quantum to be wrong. And you could have siblings with different blood quantums listed. And that was important at the original enrollment. I know this because me and my siblings had different blood quantums. <laughs> uh, fixing it in the BIA system is incredibly difficult. I, I think would it's imagine. technically possible, but it's very difficult. We at Doyon have taken a different approach when we can prove up through other records, census records, and, and other affidavits that we might get from family members, that that CIB is wrong, then we will fix it in our system. That doesn't fix it in the BIA system. And so there may be some other problems with native allotments and other native programs that rely on, on those CIBs and that blood quantum. But for purposes of our corporation, I think each corporation can address that problem without having to go through the federal system of fixing a certificate. So I, like you said, I would encourage Marlene to talk to their shareholder records department, if it's at Nana or wherever um, corporation her kids and grandkids are enrolled, they may be able to help with that problem. Okay, good. Thank you for that guidance. Uh, I appreciate it. Hopefully Marlene heard it and can get some help with this issue. We are going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue with more calls and questions as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. If you have health insurance through Medicare, now's the time to make changes to your Part D prescription drug plan. Between now and December 7th, you can enroll in, change, or drop your prescription drug plan. Check your plan to see if you need to adjust your insurance coverage. Need help deciding which one is best for you? Call Alaska's Medicare Information Office at 907-269-3680 or toll-free 800-478-6065. This message sponsored by DHSS. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the ANCSA corporations and the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act after 50 years, how things are operating today. You can join our conversation at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. So, Kim uh, and then Hallie, give us an idea of the economic weight of the corporations in Alaska. How many Alaskans do you employ and how much annual revenue uh, moving through the state does this result in? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I think it's important to, to to look back at, you know, we're 50 years, as you mentioned, and, and celebrating 50 years. I really grew up under the promise of ANCSA. My grandfather was on the interim board for Coniag, and my father was on the first elected board of directors for Coniag. And so really growing up uh, with my father and my grandfather and, and telling them that, you know, this is this is the opportunity for our Alaska Native people and really having an opportunity to step back and look at it 50 years later and looking at success and be so incredibly proud of that. You look at um, scholarships that go across our 12 regional corporations, each one of them with their education foundations. Um, you know, in one year, I think in average every year, it's over 4,000 scholarships. 
um, totaling over $10.3 million each year. Um, that that recommitment back into our people and, and scholarships through education and training is really the fabric that is um, the thread that's woven through all the regional corporations and the commitment to that. Um, you look at uh, Top 49er, I think uh, Hallie mentioned it earlier, is a, is a great base of, of how we can measure the top performing, performing privately owned businesses in Alaska. So when you look at jobs in Alaska from those top 49 companies, uh, I think Hallie mentioned that 13 village corporations and 12 of the regional corporations on that list create 70% of our jobs across the state for those privately held businesses. Um, I want to say that's easily, I think, over 17,000 jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, Revenue, I think that's about 80% of the revenue from the privately held businesses in the state are from those regional and village corporations. Um, Dividends and the distributions, about $250 And then when you start to look at 7i payments, I think we're about, uh, for 2020, I think we're looking at about $570 million that's distributed to our shareholders, descendants, and communities back through some of those 7i and 7j payments. All right. Uh, Hallie, anything to add there, or otherwise we're going to go to the phones? Yeah. Uh, No, I absolutely do. I mean, I think one thing to remember in terms of ANCs and their weight in the economy is that we're actually flipping our traditional model on its head, right? So there's no economy in the village, usually. Um, Typically, there's having to leave the village of Port Lyons or wherever it is that they're from. And for the past seven years, there hasn't even been much of an economy in Anchorage. Uh, Worldwide, uh, the data that we have shows over 50,000 employees worldwide for Alaska Native people, um, you know, about 16 billion, 14 to 16 billion dollars in revenue that comes back to the state of Alaska because we're all headquartered here. So, you know, where whereas what we're used to here in Alaska in terms of economy is an extractive company of any kind, even including, you know, some of the broadband stuff that's going to be going on, they extract a resource and the, and the profits that go with it and they take it back home. Where here we're bringing back a, a large amounts of this money and, and, like I said before, giving up 30% of our net income back into the community. And that's not only just to, Native people and Native organizations either. That includes, you know, non-Native charities and and all sorts of other benefits to our entire community. Uh, I think people say, used to say we're a three-legged stool, you know, oil and gas, military and everything else. That's our economy. But I would argue that, you know, the ANCs are the fourth leg of, and you, you can have a chair and, and we bring a little bit of stability to the state economy that way. <laughs> all right. Let's go to the phones for a moment. Clarice is in Sitka. Hello. Hello, thank you for hosting this program and I really appreciate the complexity of your questions. I'm shareholder in two Alaska Native corporations. Most shareholders don't realize they have the same rights to free speech as other Americans during ANCSCA election season. Currently, the Yakutak Corporation is considering delaying their board elections and appear to be considering filing complaints with the Alaska Banking and Securities Division over comments made by shareholders regarding contentious logging plans. I really appreciate Jacob Resnick of Coast Alaska for continuing to report on this issue. For the panelists, what is your opinion of shareholders being fined thousands of dollars for expressing views on their own corporations? Thank you. 
All right, Clarice, thanks for the question. Um, who wants to tackle that one? <laughs> That's a, a difficult Aaron. question to yeah. answer on the air. Of course. I, I think, uh, you know, when you have legal challenges and, and complaints in a formal legal setting, it's really important to know the facts. I don't know the facts of what Larice was uh, raised here with, with that Kwan or, or whichever corporation she was addressing. Mm -hmm. I do know that, you know, proxy challenges and these other corporate election challenges have happened it's a part of the system that ANCSA has uh, all the way back to the 1970s. And, and each corporation has to, again, uh, deal with the kind of Western corporate model that we were put in and blend it with their own values and uh, how they run their elections. Uh, but I don't want to try to take on what, what she's raised without the context of the particular corporation and, and the actual um, issues that, that are currently live right now. <laughs> so Aaron, we only, uh, thank you all three of you so much for your time and, and um, helping us better understand the issues around the Claim Settlement Act. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, but ANCSA, Aaron, was, uh, as we've been discussing, a huge departure from uh, other uh uh, efforts at settling land claims, if there if there were any, and it's certainly a huge departure from the reservation structure and system in the lower 48. After 50 years, what do you see as the best parts of this settlement and the experiment in handling indigenous claims that it represents? Well, this was ANCSA was part of this self determination model, which we talked about two parts of it, ANCSA and the Indian Self-Determination Act from the early 1970s, where you're handing the power back to the indigenous people, the federal government was. The reservation model, especially for the several hundred years of the early parts, was a top-down federal control of indigenous people and often abuse indigenous people, force them onto the least desirable lands tell them what they can and can't do, give them a pittance to fund their education, their health systems and things. And that was a very failed model. Um, we talked to native people across America, that was a very, very difficult model for them to succeed under. So ANCSA is different. And clearly our corporations have had a lot of economic success, created a lot of opportunity, as Hallie said, bring back, reverse the model of the extractive industries of Alaska and bring that success home. Uh, was it 100% successful? No. Were there things that it that ANGSA missed to either intentionally or unanticipated by the Congress? For sure. But has it been a model that's created generations of work for Native people, created local economies, allowed us to control our lands without that federal oversight of the reservation system? It has done that for sure, and we have all, in the 50 years, benefited from that changed model. So I, when people ask me, was, was ANCSA a fair deal, I always take a step back and remind them, look at the power Indigenous people had against the federal government negotiating, and you have, you have to start with that. I think we did a lot better in Alaska than most of our uh, native people across the U.S. with the system we have. It's not perfect. We fully acknowledge that, but we did pretty well. 
And in, in our final minute here, uh, this tracks with an email question we had, someone wondering about the percentage of non-natives who are employed in the top upper echelons of the native corporations. And I know that when I first came to Alaska at the end of the 90s, I uh, heard stories and even talked to some of the leaders who were non-native. What is, how has that changed in the decades? Um, when the corporations were first formed, uh, people, you know, had to figure out how to run businesses after being focused on making a living off the land and the waters. So how has that changed from those early days until now in about one minute? Maybe Kim wants to take that? Sure. Um, you know, I had an Atna elder tell me that, you know, signing of ANCSA was putting down your hunting rifle one day and picking up a briefcase the next. And, you know, you had the opportunity to talk to Willie and, and that that learning model of the corporate structure and how to how to do that. And I think that looking at it now, all 12 regional corporations are ran by our Alaska Native shareholders. And as I mentioned, that that investment into our people through training, education, scholarships and dividend uh, is really uh, the importance of ensuring that those next generations of uh, our Alaska Native people are at the helm of and running our Alaska Native corporations. And and do you have an idea of how, how that has changed in, in the last five decades, percentage-wise? Um, percentage-wise, I don't have the numbers, but, you know, mentally cataloging uh, the regional corporations that I work with, many of them are, the majority of their senior management teams are Alaska Native people or shareholders of those regional corporations, and I would say it was you know, vast majority, high percentage. All right. Well, thank you so much to Aaron Shutt, the CEO of Doyon Interior Native Corporation. Aaron's also the chairman for the ANCSA Regional Association Board. Kim Reitmeyer is the executive director of the ANCSA Regional Association. And Hallie Bissett is the executive director of the Alaska Native Village Corporation Association. Uh, tomorrow at 1 p.m. we'll be doing a live one-hour special Alaska Insight online. You can join us for that discussion again on ANCSA. Thanks so much for listening today, for your calls and comments by phone and email. Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, and our producer, Adlin Baxter, on the phones and social media today. Kavitha George helped us out. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.